Hey everyone, welcome back to season three of the Scrubbed In Show. Before we kick it all off, just want to shout out our new platform, Peer. Peer is a platform that allows us to share our knowledge through quizzes, to learn, to grow an audience, and to earn a passive income. Whether it's medicine, healthcare, or something outside of it all, whether it be design, coding, or finance, everyone is a learner and educator. Check it out at www.peer.io to get involved in the future of social learning. Let's kick off season three now. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week, we have another amazing guest with us, someone we've been waiting to bring onto the show for a while. We have with us Mr. Wesh Jilani, who, as many of you probably know, is a renowned consultant, pediatric neurosurgeon who works at the famous Great Ormond Street Hospital. He's a pioneer in cranial pagus twin separation. He's also dabbled in law, entrepreneurship, innovator, and also the founder of Gemini Entwined. Um, it is a massive, massive pleasure to have you on the show today, Mr. Welcome Kiran. to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here talking to both of you. No, it's Amazing. a pleasure. We have so many things we do want to talk about, and I know our listeners are keen to hear. As is the tradition we've scrubbed in podcasts, we want to take it to the very beginning, Mr. Jelani, when you were a young teenager, perhaps. Um, and tell us the the moment or when you decided you want to embark on this career of medicine? Uh, sure, sure. No, it, it, it was quite easy. So I was born in Kashmir. I was born in Kashmir. Um, and, um, you know, people that are familiar with the culture of that part of the world, um, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal to be a doctor. So if you do well at school, then then you must become a doctor. That's your path is true so so life is very easy you know if you do really well at school then you become a doctor if you don't do as well then you go into engineering and after that you know people aren't really interested you could you know if you're not a doc if you're not a doctor or an engineer (laughs) just the two careers engineer you know you you wasted your time um so um (laughs) you know i say that it's a it's a tongue-in-cheek comment but uh the traditional way of thinking was Mm. certainly that we um yeah, uh, I come from uh, my grand. Sorry, I'd st- I'll start with my grandfathers. They were both uh, educationalists, so they played a big role in bringing education to the Valley of Kashmir. My um, one of my grandfathers, he's he retired as the vice chancellor of uh, the University of Kashmir. He was a mathematician. The other grandfather, he was a historian. So I like to think that uh, I've got, um, oh, wow. I've inherited both sets of whether you call it genes or traits, whichever way you want to look at it. So there's a part of me that's the analytical side and the other side, which is more R- which is more RT. Okay. Um, so I grew up in Kashmir. And uh, like I said, you know, at that point, the career path was relatively, relatively clear. There weren't many choices. I mean, fundamentally, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of choices. And one of my uncles was a trauma surgeon. I remember, <clears throat> I remember when he would come home, he was doing his master's thesis in head injury and a number of times you'd say oh you know we can repair different parts of the body but once you hurt your head in a rta or something then your prognosis is really poor yeah. and that's my early recoll- earliest recollection of thinking we need to understand the head the brain a bit better okay i'll be a brain surgeon and i must have been around 11 at that time uh so that's how it started the interest in neurosurgery um i you know I knew nothing more as a as a young boy, and then I came to the UK when uh, when I turned fifteen. Um, the the there was some civil unrest at home. Life 
going from a very beautiful green valley to you know to almost a perfect life for a for a teenager overnight things changed quite a lot for everybody in the valley and so my family sent me here i um, i had an aunt who lived here so i came and stayed with them um uh, and so it's a big change in my life but what the looking at the positives i was now in an environment i went to a grammar school badly grammar school i was now in an environment mm-hmm. where i had so many more possibilities you know it wasn't just medicine or engineering you could do anything you wanted and you know <laughs> and for a young person it was like uh, it was it was fantastic with all these opportunities which you know living in this part of the world we take for granted but i think uh, w- one of the key things we should never forget is you know no matter how difficult life may seem to you right now we're so fortunate so fortunate where we are the opportunities that life provides us and whilst we may not have something you know relatively small in in the, in the big picture we are very fortunate to be here so c- coming back to my life i was um uh, you know 16 15 16 i came over and all of a sudden i could you know it wasn't just doctor and en- engineering i could be a physicist i could be a you know i could be an economist there were all these other professions that i knew very little about um and what i was good at at school was i was good at maths um i from a young age really from since i was quite a quite a young uh, boy maths and physics was my my area of strength and my teachers at school here saw that quite clearly so in their mind it was it was pretty clear that i shouldn't be studying medicine i should be i should be studying physics or mathematics and they said well that's where your skills lie you know it's all of these difficult concepts come easy to you Uh, so that's what you should be doing and uh, i enjoyed that enormously as well those subjects and you know any, anything that you do that you have a skill for and you're good at it you you do it well and that it's it's almost like a loop that goes on you you do it better and, and yeah, it just yeah, drives, it drives you. you and i certainly had that for those subjects but the difficulty was the reality of life was i wasn't sure where i would end up uh, whether i was going to end up in this country or whether i'd go back to kashmir um also the overarching thing for me was i needed to look after my family who were still in kashmir uh you know yeah. my my parents were doing a great job but as a young um, as their son i always felt a sense of responsibility that i had to look after them i had to look after my wider yeah. family um and it just seemed that being a doctor would give me the most certainty in a in an uncertain world uh no matter what happens you always need yeah. doctors no matter where you are you know doctors are needed which is the sad reality of life so that was the deciding deciding mm. factor for me that uh, you know i did not uh, go into maths or physics but but stayed in medicine mm. at 15 16 years old you've moved countries you've left family in one place apart from mm. sort of talking about the career deciding on medicine deciding on neurosurgery how do you also deal with the fact that you are so far away from home did it affect you a and then also you used the word i felt a sense of um responsibility that's so heavy on someone who's 15 16 years old how do you deal with something like that even at say 20 30 40 those things would be really heavy on the shoulders uh sure sure i think uh, yes it was a it was a particularly difficult time uh coming here what made it uh, what made it especially difficult was the circumstances under which it happened 
Um, it wasn't something that we had planned. I mean, what my parents had thought of, because that's what you do, you kind of plan the future. What my parents had thought was that once I'd studied medicine in Kashmir, I would probably then come over to the UK for my postgraduate education to do my FRCS or something. You know, the, those were the vague ideas, but but life changed quite rapidly. And then um, uh, overnight I had to come here. Um, and, and the biggest worry was that it was um, Kashmir became a very unstable place, which to, to an extent it still remains. Um, and the the hardest thing for me was the was coming to terms with the realization that a lot of the people that I grew up with, uh, my own family, my friends, I may never see them again. Um, and that that was that was that was difficult. It was particularly difficult. And, you know, nowadays we've got uh, means of communication are much easier. But uh, I remember in those days, I would speak to my parents, typically once a month, you had to you had to log in phone calls. So this is probably all <laughs> this probably sounds yeah. prehistoric to, <laughs> to your generation. But, but you couldn't just pick up a phone and dial a number and, and get through to another household in another country it didn't work like that. You had to, they were called trunk calls. You had to book them and they were super expensive. And so we had a set time where I, oh, wow. I would sort of wait by the phone and then my parents would typically call me and then we'd mm. speak for a few minutes. And it was, you know, just, uh, so, that, wow. so that was, that was difficult. What kept me going through all of it were two things. One, uh, I had this overarching feeling that I needed to look after my family. That was, that was there, but, but. But equally importantly, I felt, you know, when I was in Kashmir, um, there were so many bright students there, so many bright young boys and girls, and most of them didn't have the opportunity that I did. Um, so uh, I won't say a sense of guilt, but it was a sense of, well, for whatever reason, I've been given this great opportunity and I owe it to myself and yeah. everybody else who doesn't have this opportunity to do well. And uh, I couldn't just, you know, not use that opportunity well. It just, you know, so th th that was, those were the thoughts, those were the drivers that, uh, um, yeah, that pulled me through those uh, those years. Amazing, Definitely. amazing. So tell us where you then went off to study medicine, kind of your journey through medical school and then obviously becoming mm. a junior doctor. Uh, so medical school was difficult. It was, it was a hard grind. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> Most of it I did not enjoy. Um, I, I mean, then the simple reason being it's, you know, I mean, I hope medicine's changed and I think it has changed quite a lot, but it's, at, uh, you know, in the 90s, it was still, you had to learn tons and tons of facts. So it didn't matter whether you're intelligent or not, you still had to learn the facts. It's not, a, you know, so you're, you, you know, so, and that there's a lot of rote learning that was part of medicine. And to me, I don't find that interesting at all. It's not, you know, oh, I've learned this textbook cover to cover. It's just the most boring thing you could ask a young person to do. But that is what medical school expected you to do. You had, okay, here's a book, here's Grey's Anatomy. And the more you know of it, the better you are. And then, you know, here's Robin's Pathology. And the more you know of this big book. So I found that really tedious. I didn't enjoy it. Um, the, the part I did enjoy was um, in our third year, we did a research. It was an intercalated um, uh, a BMED sci at, at Nottingham that we had. So there was a research year in it, and I really enjoyed that because for me that was, 
you know, you sort of go after something that you're really interested. You do the experiments, you learn how things run. It was actually doing something. So that I found really positive and that year was enjoyable. And then, um, and then after that, as soon as the clinical work started the, the, uh, from uh, year four onwards, I enjoyed that enormously. The, the human contact for me was, it's, it's, it's difficult, you know, unless you come from a profession where there is that degree of human contact, it's difficult to explain it to someone else. You know, it's for most of us, uh, when we're growing up as kids, the human contact is within your families around with your friends at school that is and 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 you thrive in 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 in, um, in settings where that contact is a positive experience for the other person for yourself be it your relationship with your mother your father your siblings your friends but now here we were having these human relationships with strangers the patients you didn't know them before they would come in they needed your help support in an area and they're you for the most part we're able to help them and the sense of satisfaction that gives you it is impossible to describe it it really you really have to be i think you know a doctor or a nurse or a healthcare professional or something very similar to to actually to actually identify with that feeling it's it's second to none and i really enjoyed that side because like i said i was a part of me was yearning for my home my family the closeness that i shared um, uh, within my wider family growing up. And then I missed that for many years. And then when I started seeing patients again, I just felt once again that I was coming back to within my family. So t- t- a message to the young people nowadays thinking about a career in medicine, I think it, you fundamentally have to think of this not as a profession. It really has to be for you. If you can think of this as a way of your life, you know, let, let's say, Okay, let me draw an analogy. You think at some point that you may want to have a family. So you find a partner and you have kids and that is part of your life. You don't think of that as a profession. It's something that you think you will enjoy. It is really difficult, hard work being a dad. You've just told me that, uh, you know, you're, you're on the waiting list. So <laughs> so it's, 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 um, it's enormously difficult being a parent. I can tell you now, get ready for it. You know, catch up on your sleep and everything. Um, but equally, with it being enormously difficult, it's one of the most rewarding things I think a, a, a person can do. Medicine for me is similar, very similar. It is very difficult with the demands it's going to place on you, your time, your life, your health. But at the same time, the rewards, if you're doing it with the right intentions, the right way, the rewards that you get are enormous, are really, truly enormous. You know, after you've had a difficult day in the hospital and tried your best and, you know, you may have helped a few people when you come home and you sort of sit down and you're tired, you are physically tired, but you're mentally elated. You're sort of, you know, you just spiritually, you feel really good about yourself. So I think that I really enjoyed that feeling of being uh, a medical student and junior doctor. Definitely. Absolutely agree. I, I completely agree with that in the sense that there's always those really, really special cases, for example, in A&E Resus, when you actually make a massive impact and you might have had a horrible day, people might have been abusive towards you, but that case will keep you elated overnight into your sleep and into the next day as well. Um, so completely agree. You know, if I may, so if, if you think about life as a whole, you know, life has good parts and bad parts to it. That's... An, 
you know, it doesn't matter what your profession is, where you live, that is fundamentally life. It is up to you to choose which parts you want to engage with more. And that choice is yours. And mm. by by becoming a healthcare professional, and I say that because this applies equally to physios and nurses as it does to doctors and other healthcare professionals, it is you choose to engage. You say, okay, I know there is a lot that is not quite right, but I choose to engage with this side of life. I choose to engage with... Uh, yeah. A platform where I know firsthand experience I am trying to make a positive difference I am trying to help this is where I choose to spend yeah. most of my energy as opposed to other areas and that choice is yours you know you could equally say uh, mm. no Absolutely. what I want to do is I want to earn a ton of money before the age of 30 and that's my aim uh, and, mm. you know I'm not making a judgment call here that is absolutely fine if that's your aim and then you do something else if that is your aim, then you don't come into medicine because because one, you'll work super hard. No, you, you, you won't make a ton of money, <laughs> yeah. and so you'll be disappointed. So it's just getting your Definitely exactly just take. understanding <laughs> clearly what is it that drives you, what is it that you want to do with your life. No, mm. definitely, and I think that's sound advice. During your clinical years, were there any other specialties that nearly swayed you away from neurosurgery? I think that was my question as well. As a junior doctor, because I know every rotation I did, yeah, we always I like, wanted to be a, want to do that. a cute physician. And then I did ITU with RTAs and stuff. I'm like, yeah, I want to be an anesthetist, a care physician. So how was that experience for yeah, you? Yeah, so it's, it's um, so, you know, it's really interesting when you look at my life now. And you look back, it, it seems that everything was so neatly thought out and planned and ironed out. It was completely the opposite. There was just uh, no planning at all. I just did things that interested me. And uh, whilst I was doing them, I, it felt good. And I was doing them reasonably well because I was interested. And that led to the next thing and the next thing. So one of my biggest dilemmas was I needed to be a brain surgeon because I had decided when I was 11 that I was going to be a brain surgeon, then I couldn't, you know, I can't change my mind. That's, you know, what, what kind of a weakling do you think I am that, you know, sort of, you know, of course I can be a brain surgeon. But the difficulty I had was I really, I, I, I love kids. I have a real passion for kids. So give me, given a choice, spend time with a child or spend time with an adult, I would nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, choose a child. And we can, we can talk about that, you know. So my big dilemma was, okay, I want to be a brain surgeon, but I like kids. And uh, it I, that was playing on my mind for, you know, I should be a pediatrician, not a brain surgeon. And that sort of played on me quite a bit until I met a person in Nottingham, a neurosurgeon. His name was Jonathan Punt, a fantastic person who became my first, uh, my first sort of clinical mentor. And he, um, I went to his office and I said, I have this dilemma. And he said, well, have you ever thought about pediatric neurosurgery? <laughs> And 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 I hadn't. I had no idea that existed that you could have a pediatric neurosurgeon. It was like a moment of epiphany, and I was like, "Wow, this is it! This is it! I can have both things. I can have, you know, best of both worlds." And that's where pediatric neurosurgery came from. What was really helpful is that most other neurosurgeons don't want to be pediatric neurosurgeons. It's it's really mm -hmm. interesting. So every time I kept saying, "Oh, I want to be a pediatric neurosurgeon." like the more senior people were interested in that. They were, you know, trying to help me because they needed more pediatric neurosurgeons. Most neurosurgeons would, yeah. you know, go into spinal work or adult skull base work or vascular. These are the, you know, these are the areas that 
people typically go into, but mm. uh, pediatrics wasn't very popular. Then. Why is that? Why is that uh, the case? It's interesting. I think I think a, a number of reasons. Firstly, I think from a from an emotional point of view, it is probably a bit more taxing. It does. Yeah. Uh, it does, exactly. um, you know, it ha- does have that added element to it that you are dealing with young kids and their families that for some people does make it harder. Um, the other more practical things is there is um, hardly any private practice in pediatric medicine um, as opposed to other areas. Yeah. So, you know, for some people that would be a factor as well. Um, yeah, I think yeah. those are probably the t- top two, top two things. Yeah kind of had this epiphany that you wanted to be a pediatric neurosurgeon you know you've kind of gone through the 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 grueling of foundation training which i'm sure was probably a lot worse when you did it tell us you know that experience of working at great ormond street hospital that it's world renowned everyone has their eyes set on it what was i know you've been working there for so many decades now what was that feeling of being there on your first day kind of working in this famous institute So what I did after medical school was I, I effectively made my own rotation and you could do that in those days <laughs> because I, I wanted okay. to get pediatric yeah. exposure, but at the same time, I needed to do some core, um, core uh, air, um, modules for uh, surgeries. I needed to do A&E, general surgery and so on and so forth. And so uh, what I did was I spent time in those sort of core surgical areas. Um, and also I did a six month stint in neonatal intensive care. Uh, NICU in what was then called Queen Charlotte's Hospital. Now it's part of Hammersmith. And that was possibly one of the hardest six months of my life. It really is hats off to the neonatologists and, you know, the uh, pediatricians that work in work in those areas. It was really, really tough doing that, you know, probably tougher than being a neurosurgeon, I would say. And then I arrived at Great Ormond Street um, and I, you know, I, I just fell in love with the place straight away. It really was a moment like that because the, the way to, personally speaking, I think what it really did for me is, you know, up until this point, I had been away from my family, my home for about 10 years. And I'd done a lot of things. I'd, you know, medical school, friends, other things in life. But there was a part of me that was still a little bit, maybe not lost, but still uh, still looking for a meaning to life still thinking about okay you know my life was pretty smooth and great and then it went into into a washing machine came out of a washing machine into a tumble dryer what's next where is this heading and and then when i arrived at great ormond street it it the feeling i got was i found that family the, that closeness that human contact that i had yearned for the past 10 years i'd found it again and I just, for me, it was pretty clear, um, you know, within the first uh, few months, within the first year of being a great Ormond Street, that I wanted to spend the rest of my, you know, I wanted to spend the rest of my training and quite quite a bit of my life, maybe the rest of my life here. One of the senior nurses who's now retired, um, I, I don't remember this, but uh, she tells me uh, that uh, she'd been a great Ormond Street altogether for about 32 years. She tells me that... Uh, I told her one day, she asked me what I wanted to do with my life. And I said, I'm going to be here in, in 20 years time. Uh, so apparently, you know, that's something I told her uh, right at the beginning. And then, as I said, I was for, I was fortunate enough because um, not many people wanted to do pediatrics. So once I got my neurosurgery training number, I kept asking our program director, Mr. Watkins, every opportunity 
I could go back to Great Ormond Street, so they'd send me because other people didn't want it. So it was like yeah. pushing at an open door. Um, and then I, you know, I was fortunate enough to get a consultant job there. And uh, yeah, there. Yeah, up until now, it's, it's incredible your journey. Um, tell us about the next kind of big phase of your life or what people kind of know you for with the twin separation. Um, I understand the first one was done in 2011. Um, so kind of tell us about how it kind of led up to that point. How did you come across these type of surgeries? I remember stories saying, you know, no one would touch them or wouldn't go near them except Mr. Jelani who would come in and kind of, kind of at least engage and see what the opportunities were. And that kind of put you on our radar, which we found inspiring. Tell us about yes, that journey. Sure, to the first sure. twin separation. So the, the hospital itself, you know, Great Ormond Street has a, has a huge pedigree of doing conjoint operations. It's got one of the world's largest series of conjoint operations. Now, if we talk about craniopagus, the first operation was done in 2006. And I was, I was a registrar at the hospital at that time. Um, so I was part of the team that looked up after these kids on the ward, but not part of the surgical team as such. It was done by uh, David Dunaway and Richard Hayward, my uh, mentors. And then the next case was 2011, which I led on, and we've had um, a few more cases since then. Um, I th the message I'd like to, uh, uh, you know, what's all of this taught me? So fundamentally, this may sound a bit like cliche, but what I've, I've done many different things with my life, um, neurosurgery being one part of it. And what I can say from my perspective is that pretty much all knowledge whether you're studying law or medicine or you're setting up a new business, all knowledge is essentially one. And fundamentally, what the, what the task for you is, there is a lot of facts, there's a lot of noise around you. How do you distill the noise, first of all, pick the right facts, give them the right weight? And because if you're able to do that, then you'll be able to predict the future better. Once you're able to predict the future better, you will be more successful no matter what you do. And uh, one, you'll be more successful and people around you will call you lucky. They'll say, oh, you know, he's a lucky surgeon. You know, he just gets good results all the time. He's so lucky. Luck is what people, <laughs> luck is what people use to describe what they don't understand. When you don't understand something, you just call it lucky. It's nothing to do with luck. It is just you're looking at things in a slightly different way. Craniopagus twins, again, it's the same thing. There are just so many different ways of doing it. But in your mind, you have to say, okay, if we cut this blood vessel first and go to this next step, what are the chances of this working? Okay, let's try it a slightly different combination. And you work these multiple combinations using the right facts with the right weight, and you give yourself the best possible chance of success. The exact same analogy applies to craniopagal separations, applies to more complex neurosurgical procedures, applies to, as I said, uh, you know, uh, setting up a new business venture. You know, you're going to make this new app or let's say uh, digital images, so on and so forth. Why is this particular business going to be more successful than compared to the other dozen uh, similar apps that are being out there? It's again, knowing what the noise is, what the facts are that matter and how much weight you associate with each fact. That will give you um, a clearer path, a strategy for a better chance of a more successful outcome. So it's the same principle. It doesn't matter what you do. But again, when you look at lawyers deliberating cases, same thing. That's what they're looking at. They're looking at the facts. They're looking at, you know, how much is this relevant? So all these people in various diverse fields are trying to do the same thing with facts. Medicine does the same thing. 
So for me, it's really important. We, we're stuck in, in our age. We're stuck in this, oh, you're a doctor. You should just be a doctor. From my perspective, that's complete nonsense. It, it's like, you know, it's like telling a child, oh, you're only allowed to add. You're not allowed to subtract or multiply or divide. It's, it makes no sense, you know. <laughs> once you're good with numbers, yeah. once you know how to look yeah. at facts, you, for, for me, you know, if, if, if you're a clear thinker, um, which you need to be, you know, to be a, a successful surgeon, you need to think pretty clearly. I think you could be a very good CEO as well and run a really big corporation. It's the same skill set you need. Look at the facts on the table and yeah, how definitely. you use them. We're big advocates for that, especially the reason why we set up the podcast was to kind of show as a physician, as a doctor, it's not your identity. You can do so much more and we kind of mm. encourage it. You know, it's a, it's a title given by society, um, which is something I want to touch on. I, I'd just like to make this point. So over the years, I've had a number of people that come to me and say, oh, should I study medicine? I'm, I'm kind of interested, but I'm not 100% sure if I want to work as a doctor because, you know, long hours, etc., etc." So I give them the general spiel of why one should become a doctor, which I told you. It's, you know, it's, it's for the passion. But the other thing which is equally important is after a medical education, in my opinion, you can do anything. You can do anything. The, your opportunities are so vast, much more than, let's say, if you studied history. I mean, maybe after history you can do it as well. But do you see what I'm trying to get at? It's, it's really get yourself out of this thinking that if you study, if you go to medical school and study medicine, then there is only one kind of life you can have. That's not true. The, the opportunities are, are truly endless. So if you think you want to study medicine, if you're interested, then I would strongly recommend go for it. I agree. agree. You kind of summarized the, the yeah. purpose of the whole podcast in that <laughs> sentence. And it's interesting. I had a, <laughs> after a hundred episodes, uh, I think um, it's quite interesting. And there are a few people that you meet in your career early on that are very clued up. And I met this guy. Um, he was also a medic when I did an integrated degree in a kind of regenerative um, medicine. And his whole purpose was I'm getting a medical degree and I'm going to become the CEO of this big med tech corporation. I'm never going to do a day of clinics. And I said, how does that even make sense? He goes, we, we, we're so blinded by the fact to do medicine to be a doctor. We, we, we sometimes forget it is a degree that can mm. be used for other things, other skill sets. I wonder where he is now. I lost contact with him, but I'm sure he's, he's very successful in his own right. <laughs> um, the one thing I wanted to touch before I forget is you mentioned mentors quite a few times. Um, and we kind of advocate for that as well. Tell us the value of having mentorship because i know a lot of medics you know they're alpha personalities they think they can do it all and they're not usually the smartest people in the room kind of that mentality why is the importance of having mentors and how valuable has it been for you so it's absolutely right after a medical degree you can do pretty much anything you like and you should keep your mind open i suppose the one thing that practicing as a doctor does for me it gives me an angle which i then feed into a lot of the other things that i do an angle that i would not have if I didn't have, you know, a part of my time within clinical practice, does that make sense? So there is, there is, a, there is a, a real benefit to practicing medicine, be it, you know, uh, whatever, whatever proportion of your time you think is, is suitable. What you gain from doing that really does feed into a lot of other things as well. So it doesn't have to be a binary thing. You could, you could be running things. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. let's park that. Moving on to mentors. Um, I think mentors are really useful, but fundamentally what I would say is my message to each and every one of you is you need to, you need to devise your own path. Don't follow anyone, really do not, because 
you can be so much better than anyone you know of, anyone. And I believe that for every child, every young person, every person, fundamentally, where mentors come in is people have done things, they may have done things slightly differently to the mainstream. Uh, it's useful to look at mentors more as case studies. Okay, you know, he's done this and he's arrived there and these were the difficulties and this is what he likes about his life and these are the things that he feels he'd done differently. Learn from other people. And I think that's really valuable. That applies to, again, that applies to being a surgeon, but applies to pretty much everything. I would, I would, I would often say this. It doesn't matter once you've graduated from medical school, you're a junior doctor. It doesn't matter how clever you are. It doesn't matter how hardworking you are. You could be the most clever, the most hardworking junior doctor there is, but you'll only have 20 years of experience after 20 years. You can't short, you cannot shortchange that. Your cleverness doesn't get you over that. Now, what can you do? Learn from the people that have been there for 20 years. Just watch them. And that is where, for me, mentorship comes in. So I've got an idea about something, but let me look at this person who's been doing this for 20, 30 years. He's thinking slightly differently. It is up to you to try and work out why is he saying and thinking the way he is, because the better you are at doing that, the better you are at making up for the lack of experience. You're essentially learning from their experience. And in theory, I mean, it's humanly impossible, I think, but in theory, Let's say if we could think of an automaton who could just take everybody's experience and feed from it, just imagine that young doctor, you know, phenomenal, right? So it's really, it's really what 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 you need to be able to uh, you to be able to, okay get yourself in that position. You were this, you know, you've graduated from med school, you're a junior doctor, have this mode going. Okay, I don't have 20 years experience yet, but there's a lot of people around me that do. How do I feed from their experience, and use use mentors yeah. to do that? Definitely. Amazing. I, I want to take it a little bit back to craniopagus uh, operations, actually. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the workup in those those cases. So the craniopagus operations have clearly caught media attention, particularly. Um, first of all, when you Google neurosurgery, every single operation is complex. Every single operation is incredibly, it requires intricate sort of planning and doing but when there's media attention, how does it sort of change the dynamics for you? And what, what sort of pressure does that bring on for the, yeah, for the lead surgeon? Yeah, um, excellent question. So um, media does, does add an element, a dimension to this whole thing, which, which may be detrimental. That is absolutely the case. So there is two things you need to be able to do. You need to do if you're going to have media around. Some people can work with the media, having them around, and others cannot. So first of all, you need to work work that out for yourself. If you're someone who can, you know, you could have half a dozen cameras around you, but if your focus is such that they virtually disappear, you don't even see them, if you can achieve that, then for you, good. It works for you, that's great. But also be mindful that in theater, you've got another dozen people, maybe more, who may be affected by the media. So as the as the lead person, you need to be completely cognizant of that and make sure that it is not an issue because I don't think you know you could justify having media there if you feel that that's going to compromise the outcome for the child or the children. So that's the first thing. You can have media. It's it's useful to have media, you know, they do play their role, but not at the expense of what you're doing. 
That's the first thing. The second thing about media is what it often does. So this is in the OR. What media often does is it distorts your decision-making algorithms. And this is the, the bigger picture. So, uh, you know, I've been involved with Craniopagus twin operations where the case is complex. We go through all the medical, scientific, et cetera, et cetera, and say, okay, this case should be done here in the UK. It's too complex. And then at the last minute you have, you know, the senior political um, circles get involved and say, oh, no, no, we want to do this case in our country because it's a huge plus for the country. And then you end up saying, hang on, but we're talking about two children here. You know, you've got to get your, this is what I mean by getting your facts right. When you're there deciding on those cases, your absolute complete focus has to be on what's best for those two kids. Because if you can achieve that degree of clarity in your thinking, you will make your, I go back to lucky surgeon, I go back to decision-making algorithms. That is where it comes in. The moment you say, okay, for me, the welfare of these kids is 90% weight. And then to make President X happy is 10% of the weight, you've lost it. Your decision-making is going to be only 90% optimal. It's not going to be the most optimal decision. And, you know, you may get away with it. And if you do, fine, well done. You get a you know pat on your back. But if you don't get away with it, you will not forgive yourself because you know your weighted has been incorrect. And that is where the, the, the clarity the, the clarity is not for anybody else. It's for you. Fundamentally, it's for you. If you can get your thinking that clear, it really helps with the decision making and things will go wrong. It, they, they always do. We're human. But when things go wrong, you need to be able to, you're in a quiet, dark room all by yourself, nobody around. You need to be able to say, okay, I did the best I thought I could with the right you know, parameters. It didn't work out. That's fine. As opposed to, I shouldn't have, you know, I shouldn't have used this bit of information. You know, the fact that I was being promised X, Y, and Z. Don't let that decision-making has to be clear. Absolutely amazing. I can, I can really imagine the pressure when when all of those factors get involved. Have you ever, I don't know if you can comment on it, but have you ever been in a very tough situation where you you know what is the right decision and you're finding it so hard with all of this external pressure on you to do something else? Many times. And yeah, I can imagine. Many times. Imagine. And for me, um, and I, you know, this is, so I was in a, okay, in another country and we're doing a really complex case. And mm -hmm. in my mind, I had, you know, I wasn't sure of the morning of this operation whether the team would actually listen and do things the right way. And for me, you know, I was speaking mm -hmm. with my wife um, uh, on the phone and she said, what are you going to do if that happens, if they're not listening and they're doing something wrong? I said, I'll try my best. And she said, if they don't listen, I said, right, at that point in time, I will take my gloves off and I'll walk out. I am not going to be there. I'm not going to be um, there when yeah. the kids come to harm because... Yeah that is something that I have to carry for the rest of my life then. And I can't put myself through that. I've, I've got enough, you know, I've got enough to carry. I've, I've, you know, over the years, yeah. there've been many kids that I've not been able to help and they stay with you. You know, you carry their weight throughout. And so yeah. for me, that decision-making was clear. So yeah. So I, when I end up in a situation where I feel a child is going to come to harm, yeah. Uh, then I extricate myself. I, I just really, really um, loved how you said that because I think in this current generation, uh, a lot of healthcare professionals, medics, we've got a certain uh, media attention. You're seeing medical students who are 
um, YouTubers with over a million, millions and millions of uh, followers. They're on certain TV. They've got brand deals and all sorts. And it can sometimes actually harm sort of patient care if if they're sort of clouded by decision making when it comes to especially money. Um, so I love the fact that you put that at the core and the, the analogy of I will take my gloves off if that happens. Again, I speak from personal experience. If you keep that degree of clarity right at the core of your decision making, in my life, what has happened, everything then falls into place. It may not fall into place straight away, but in time, things do fall into place. And so just just stick to what is, you know, stick to the facts and stick to why you're there. That, that focus, especially well for everybody, especially for a surgeon is is priceless, paramount. I mean, I don't have the words to describe how important that is. We're conscious of time. The other thing I want to touch on is the new generation of medics, especially the ones that are entering, they're all very tech savvy, entrepreneurial, kind of startup minded. Um, if people kind of look into your history, you also have dabbled in business and entrepreneurship. So kind of, you know, putting the neurosurgical life on hold for the time being. Um, Tell us about your endeavors outside of neurosurgery in the world of business and entrepreneurship. And how did you find uh, it? So I really enjoy it. I really do enjoy it because mm. the the kind of things that I do outside neurosurgery, it it, it brings in a slightly different skill set uh, to core neurosurgery. The, the fundamentals of how you do it, as I say, mm. remain the same in terms of addressing the facts, distilling the noise, giving the right weight to the right facts strategy. Mm. That's the same. But then doing it in a in an operating theater versus a boardroom versus in a startup brings with it different challenge and different excitement. So I really do enjoy um, being in these other yep. arenas as well, running through these running through these um, scenarios. Um, what drives all of this for me is fundamentally no matter what you do, it's most of what I've done is healthcare related, whether it's advisory work or um, uh, other. Uh, businesses it's it's fundamentally thinking okay okay at the moment i'm not here as a surgeon i'm here as an advisor how is this bit of advice how is this mm. bit of strategy going to help that one patient and i think you know if you are able to you could be advising on a uh, to a global corporation on strategy to launch in a new uh, market again if you bring it back to what is right mm. for the patient for that one patient in that area how does how does it feed to the, the global health, if you can have those um, overarching things in your head, then I think, you know, one, you will enjoy it. It will feed back into your surgical work, that your surgery work feeds into it. So it all becomes effectively one force trying to do the same thing. So when you speak to a lot of clinicians, they feel when they kind of dabble in things outside of medicine, it helps them become a better clinician. There's a lot more content, you know, contentment and satisfaction. Is that something you've also yeah, experienced? Yeah. So here it is, here it is, uh, Abdul. As doctors, you know what our favorite pastime is besides <laughs> so you know maybe things have changed now but as doctors one of our favorite pastimes is you know to say oh these managers are totally rubbish and you know they don't know what they're doing and and it's just and executives you know <laughs> yeah. what are they talking about they don't really understand they don't really care that may be partly true but the bottom line is that most of these people on the other side as we've made it are trying to do their best as well now it may not seem like that to you equally if you're on that side of the line they're probably thinking oh these doctors and nurses they're just whinging all the time but the the, the bottom line is that those uh, you know that doesn't help the patients that doesn't help what we're trying to do 
So as a doctor or a nurse or a manager, what you need to be able to do is cross the threshold to the other side. You need to be the doctor and the manager, right? You need to be the nurse and the manager. You need to understand the whole paradigm and the leader and then say, okay, how are we going to structure the NHS to make it as efficient and as useful for the vast majority of people in this country, right? And I think healthcare professionals are optimally placed to do that. For me, people, you know, I would like to see many more nurses, many more doctors, given the tools and the training in management and leadership and take those positions. I don't mean give up their clinical role. They could, as like I've said, I think it's useful to keep your clinical role going as well, but then take on these other positions. So then, you know, it's not a case of me pointing the finger at the managers and the fingers. Pointing fingers doesn't help. You know, it doesn't help that child who didn't get the bed because we we didn't have any beds in the hospital. So you've got to, that is the problem. And we've got to work out a structure amongst ourselves how we solve that problem. So I would like us to move on to that type of thinking rather than, you know, those lazy managers or, you know. <laughs> no, definitely. <laughs> I think um, it's been a pleasure hearing your, your story. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of resilience hard work you know graft in there um i think if you were to kind of go back having achieved what you've achieved so far would you do it all over again or would you kind of pick you know what i want to be a historian <laughs> and go to Eton or or something uh, <laughs> no I, undoubtedly i would i would do it all over again i would do it in the order i've done it in because fundamentally i enjoyed what yeah. i was doing when i was doing it when i took time out to do an mba i really enjoyed that year when I studied yeah. uh, law, mm. I enjoyed my time and working as a as a pediatric specialist. You know, every day of my life gives me something that um, I wouldn't get if I wasn't doing this job. So, you know, I, I feel very fortunate having mm. done what I have and, uh, you know, what what I'm uh, hoping and planning to do in the future. Um, but it, it does have to be, mm. I think, going right to the beginning, you have to be there for the right reasons. You have to that is what you need to yeah. ask yourself and that's what you need to sort out within yourself what is it that you want from your life and um, if you get that yeah. sorted out early on then I think a career in medicine you know nothing else comes close to it no absolutely definitely amazing. agree and I think I was going to ask what advice would you give but you've just said it kind of being true to ourselves and understanding what do you really want exactly mm-hmm. exactly be true to yourself there I have had you know I've, I have had doctors uh with me that i've trained and i've helped them leave medicine i've done that actively and they've they've (laughs) they've they've, they're gonna get a lot of backlash (laughs) oh no your emails are gonna be flooded you know i I can think of one particular person who'd trained as a neurosurgeon for seven years before he made the move to mckinsey i helped him with that and then he came to see me many years later and he was so happy and felt so fulfilled. It was like the best thing. So, you know, be true to yourself. That is. And how do you yeah. know what is true to yourself? Learn to listen. Yeah. There is a lot of noise in this world. And so we don't listen to ourselves. We become really bad at listening to ourselves. We're just constantly, you know, mom and dad wanted this and my partner wants this and my friends say this yeah. and, you know, Twitter says this and, you know, yeah. oh my God, LinkedIn is not really going my way there's just so much just <laughs> you, you need to be able to block it all off for x amount of time and just you and your silence learn to listen to yourself it doesn't come overnight but work at it learn to listen to yourself and just be true to yourself 
loads of lessons loads of lessons for us to take away in our audience so thank you so much for this no it, it's a so real much. pleasure and i must say you know when i when i talk to people it's you know of the younger generation it's it's funny now saying the younger generation i don't think of myself as that old but i guess i am <laughs> I was going to say it's, yeah. It's 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 really, I I feel really heartened. I feel really positive because I see an energy that that I see in your generation, which perhaps wasn't there before. You have the tools to affect change at such a large scale, hmm. and there is a, an, a, yeah. a newness, a novelty in how you think and how you interact. So I see a huge amount of potential coming out of your generation. No. Thank Amazing. you so much. And I think it's, it's what we need to hear, like our our seniors and consultants. Um, we've had, you know, consultants saying, why are you kind of doing these recordings and videos? What, what do you gain out of it? And you feel a bit disheartened. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, hierarchy is kind of ingrained sure. into us, right? You, you know, since the get go and you feel like, ah, oh, you know, my consultant doesn't like what I'm doing. And then we meet individuals like yourselves who are kind of pioneers in what they're doing and we feel re-energized and like, you know, we probably are doing something right. Um, so thank you for no, being here. I'm sure you're probably the same with your I trainees. could not agree more. I am I am I absolutely so inspired with what you guys have done with Scrubbed In. I think it's a fantastic mm. podcast. Keep it going. Yeah. And you know, secondly to these yeah, those consultants of yours, when they ask you why you're doing it, just say because <laughs> yeah. I like it, you know, full stop. Those are the only three <laughs> words you need to use. Anybody asks you why you're doing it, that's your yeah, answer. I like it. Thank you. No, it's been a pleasure. No, thank you so much. We wish you even more success. Um, it's been an absolute, absolute pleasure, Mr. Jelani.